Okay, um, you can't open your Bibles to Joshua. You should have uh, gotten a packet when you came in. And in that packet, if you look at the very back, the last, uh, really it's two pieces of paper, but front and back on one and then front on the other is um, all of the verses or most of the verses that we're going to be covering this evening. And so they should be right there in that packet. Uh, Joshua 1, mostly through chapter 5, is where we're going to be looking uh, tonight. And just as a means of review to kind of give you an idea of where we are in our study. Remember, we uh, have a kind of trying to approach the Old Testament and take a look at it. And really, if you imagine the Bible, or in particular the Old Testament, sort of like a diamond that's got many, many facets. There's archaeological facets. There's historical facets. There's theological facets. There's all kinds of things. We're trying to just every week sort of spin the diamond and look at as many facets as we possibly can. And so we're looking at uh, archaeological data. We're looking at all of those kinds of things. We're looking at the geography of the place, if necessary. We're trying to see pretty much all of the details that we can that might uh, help us to better understand the Old Testament. And so as we have done, we have come through really uh, three parts prior where we've looked at uh, Abraham and the patriarchs. That was the first little section. And then we looked at the Exodus, which is Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then we looked at the wilderness wanderings as they've journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years. And now we come to the fourth part, which is the conquest, uh, typically called the conquest, is where Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the promised land to take possession of it. And so we said, based on what we know from history, that this is most likely taking place somewhere in the years between 1406 B.C., up to 1399 B.C. Remember, it counts backwards when you get in the B.C. days. So uh, roughly about seven years that it takes them to kind of move in that the book of Joshua takes place, um, well, yeah, it takes place during. Uh, and so 1406 to 1399 B.C. Now, remember that the historical situation that's going on at the time is that Egypt had control of the promised land, what we call the promised land. They had control of the land of Canaan. But the two pharaohs that were on the throne during this time as the children of Israel moving in and getting settled down, neither one of those pharaohs had any interest in foreign diplomacy. They didn't have any desire to actually reach out beyond the Egyptian borders. And so what that meant is though they had control of the land of Canaan, they didn't really care to do anything about it. And so there ended up kind of being a vacuum. Not only that, but there were powers at the time that were in the Mesopotamian region that really didn't have much of a desire either to, to reach out and try to take it from Egypt. And nor did they really want to pick a fight with a beast like uh, Egypt. You remember um, Pearl Harbor, obviously, was uh, the Japanese emperor at the time was quoted as saying uh, after they bombed Pearl Harbor, I think this is right, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but uh, he said, I fear all we've done is woken a sleeping giant, right? Well, that's exactly what the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Parasites and the Termites and the, all the ites and bites did not want to do with Egypt was go in to the land of Canaan and take control over it, though it was prime real estate, but for fear that they might wake up a sleeping giant in Egypt. And so what that means is that the land of Canaan just kind of was sort of open. There was nobody really watching it. And all of the people that are in Canaan at the time are really just little tiny kings over just little city-states. So you might have some so a conglomeration of Hittites and Jebusites and again parasites and termites and all those ites and bites that are in a little group of people in like Jericho, let's say, and they have a king over them who pays tribute to Egypt, but Egypt uh, but doesn't really have anybody else to control them. And so that little king is over that little city-state. So what that means is when the children of Israel walk into the land of promise, there's nobody really watching the front door. And so they just walk in and, and take control of it. Plus, God's going before them. That's another thing we'll talk about tonight. Uh, so, but what we talked about last week, which I think is really important as we think about them walking into the land of Canaan, is that the conquest presents some uh, kind of an ethical challenges as you think about the children of Israel and what they're commanded to do. They're supposed to walk into the land and they are supposed to 
well, pretty much lay waste to particular groups of people. We're going to see that in Jericho. We're going to see that in Ai, where they're going to walk in. They're going to kill everybody. And they're told specifically, burn everyone to the ground. Don't leave a survivor, not one. So what do we do with that? How do we understand God commanding his people to go in and condemn them? Well, we talked about how first thing we have to note is that God is the creator. And as such, he has the right to judge humanity however he pleases. And we know we see that even with Jesus himself, who goes to the cross as a completely innocent man and dies a traitor's death. Uh, And there on the cross, the full wrath of God is poured out on the shoulders of Christ. So we know that not only does does God command this of the children of Israel to walk in and do this, he judges his own son this way for our benefit. Um, So he has, as a creator, he has the right to do whatever he wants. That's one thing we have to understand. We also have to understand that the conquest is a picture of final judgment that God had waited for 400 years to judge the Amorites. He said that sin of the Amorites is not full yet. I say that it's 400 years. It's 400 years from when he told Abraham. But who knows how long it had been before that, that they had been engaged in kinds of sin, that he's waiting for repentance and, um, and w- or waiting to judge them, maybe, you should, maybe I should say. And so uh, the, the Jewish people are coming in at a time when God decrees it is time to judge these people for their sins. We're talking about a group of people that are um, sacrificing their own children in the midst of worship services that are orgies. And it, it, this kind of behavior that God decrees should be judged and cannot go on any longer. And, um, and so the children of Israel are to walk in and they are to, um, to lay waste to a couple of cities in particular. Another thing we need to remember is that um, this isn't everybody that he tells them to do this with. In fact, there are some he tells them to, to spare and to save. And so there are some that he, he does spare. Many, actually, he does spare. Many of them are just driven out of the land, run off in a sense, um, that don't engage in battle. They, they run away. But Jericho and I, in particular, are, are, are killed and laid waste. I want to open up, because last time we, um, we kind of stopped and there wasn't a whole lot of time for questions, and I got some questions through email and things like that that I needed to answer, so I figured there might be some more. Were there any more questions about uh, last Wednesday, if you were here, or any questions about that um, before we go into tonight? Yeah, go ahead. Um, we're not told entirely, so we don't know for sure uh, why these two cities in particular, but there are some things we are told that we can kind of piece together and surmise this is what's going on there. Um, the cities that had largely Canaanite populations in them, um, the, the, um, the women were not um, I say the women were not submissive to their husbands, so they didn't follow after their husband's religion. So um, the men would be killed militarily um, because they're the opposing military. That's pretty common. Um, the women in some cases, and what you even see this in some of the cities that they go in and, and drive out, the women in some cases are spared and taken as wives to some degree. Um, but most of the ones that are taken are, are taken because they're not uh, Canaanite. Uh, their heritage isn't Canaanite. And so uh, they would fall, follow the religion of whatever their husband and the household of their husband. So it seems as though we have enough verses across this uh, genre of Scripture that, that seems to be that that's the case. And that some of them were burned to the ground because... There is, the last thing God wanted was for uh, one of them to pollute this stream, as it were, um, by persuading us. If you remember Jezebel, uh, Queen Jezebel and Ahab, Je- Jezebel was a Canaanite uh, w- uh, woman. She was a uh, priestess of Baal. And so she persuaded Ahab, her husband, and the rest of Israel then followed suit 
to worship Baal and raise up sanctuaries and things like this, that Elijah is in the midst of, um, well, killing the prophets, basically, is what he's in the midst of doing in, in there in First Kings. So, yeah. Any other questions like that? Okay. Well, we'll if you do think of them, you can email me. I'll, I'll answer them even on Wednesday night if, if necessary. But I realize that the conquest... Is a, is a particularly challenging one, and it's, some, it's somewhat difficult to, to think through sometimes. I want to give you a look at the land um, as Joshua and the children of Israel are about to walk through. So I've got a little laser pointer here. If it reflects too bad, watch your eyes, okay? It's a bright one. All right. Um, the children of Israel are over here in a city called Shittim, and uh, up and down north and south right here is the Jordan River. And this is the top of the Dead Sea right here, okay? So you got your bearings, all right? But you've got Shittim, where they are encamped on the other side of the river. Uh, across the river, you have Gilgal, which is where they're going to be by the end of tonight. And then Jericho, which is the first city that they're going to attack. And then just down the road here is the city of Ai. It's spelled A-I, but it's pronounced I is right here, um, just a little ways away from Jericho. So these are the four most prominent places we need to kind of focus our attention on for the next few chapters in the book of Joshua. But that's sort of a lay of the the land, as it were. Now, um, the children of Israel are commanded at Horeb. What is Horeb, by the way? What is it? Mount Mount, yeah, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Um, so uh, it's the same, same <laughs> mount. <laughs> um, uh, so the, the command of the Lord was given to them at Mount Sinai, and he tells them that they need to set out for the sworn or the promised land and go in and actually take it. And it's all about to be realized in the book of Joshua. That's essentially what the book of Joshua is all about. And you can see there in Deuteronomy 1, 6 to 8, where the Lord commands this of them. Moses is recounting it. He says, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your, take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Negev, and uh, by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates. Uh, see, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. Okay, so the book of Joshua really opens up with Israel on the brink. Uh, I hate it. Sorry, it skipped twice on me. Let me go back. Come on. There we go. Uh, sometimes it just jumps twice on me. It's like it's two clicks. But um, the book of Joshua opens up with Israel on the brink of crossing into the, uh, crossing the Jordan to fulfill the destiny that the Lord had set out for them as far back as Genesis chapter 15. You'll remember in Genesis 15 where he gives that promise to Abraham that your children are going to come back here in, in 400 years and they're going to take possession of the land. And so they're going to live in Egypt for a while. And he makes this promise. So they're coming in in the book of Joshua at the beginning of the book of Joshua to fulfill their final destiny. Now, the book of Joshua itself is divided into three parts, and it's helpful to think of books. I, 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 I hit on this quite a bit every time we enter a new book, but I think it's the most helpful thing you can do is, before you even study a book of the Bible is learn the outline of the book. How is it built? How is it structured? Because if you know how it's structured, then you understand those really pesky, weird verses that you're like, what is that purpose? But if you know the structure of what's trying to be accomplished in a section of the book, it's very helpful. So it's divided into three parts. The first part is the conquest of the land. And that's as early as, uh, obviously, 1, 1 all the way through 1224. So the first is the conquest of the land. The second section of the book, almost up to the end, minus a few chapters, is the division of the land. So once they get into the land, then they're going to start allocating all the parts of the land to individual tribes. And so they're going to take up residence. So the conquest of the land, then the division of the land, and then finally, what they have to do to retain the land. That's going to end up being the, 
what do you call it? My mom always called it the bugaboo. Uh, whatever, it, the, th- the thing that's going to end up giving you the most trouble uh, is the how do we retain this land? No, is that not right? What's that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. Pro- problem, yes. <laughs> that would have been far better. Uh, for some reason, problem didn't pop into my mind. Bugaboo did. Um, uh, she also used to call it something else, and I can't remember. She listens to this, so she'll probably call me and tell me what? Fly, fly in the ointment. There you go. Anyway, you get the idea. This is going to end up being the problem is how they actually end up retaining the land. In fact, when we get to the end of Joshua, you will see that, that, that Joshua actually tells them they won't retain it. Um, Moses told them they wouldn't retain it, and Joshua's going to tell them too. And you'll remember the passage. He says, choose you this day whom you serve. You probably have that uh, plastered on a board in your house. Choose you this day whom you serve. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. And uh, it's all great and everything. And they say after that, you know, we'll do it. We will do it. We will follow the Lord. And he goes, no, you won't. <laughs> he just tells them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> That's how it ends. Um, so the conquest of the land, the division of the land, and then how they end up or how they're supposed to retain the land. And so the book opens with um, this eightfold promise from the Lord to give Israel the promised uh, land. And I want to I want you to see this in just uh, verses uh, Joshua one, two, all the way. It really ends up going all the way through um, uh, thirteen or fourteen. But he says, "Moses, my servant, is dead." Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 11. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord God is providing you a place of rest and will give you uh, this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall possess, uh, shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives you rest to your brothers as he has to you. As, and they, t- they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. They, then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess Possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So there is a a promise of the Lord that he is going to, he aims to fulfill, and it's there's eight eight essentially times he reiterates this promise to them that he is going to give them this land. And if you pay close attention to how the book is structured, it opens with this promise eight times I'm going to give you the land. And how does it end? It ends with the Lord faithfully keeping his promise. So the Lord has faithfully kept his promise. If you look in Joshua 23, 14, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. Joshua talking, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that your, the Lord your God had promised concerning you. All have come to pass. None of them has failed. So if you think about those two bookends in the book of Joshua, what is the book of Joshua about? It's about the Lord being faithful to his promise. That what he has promised, even as far back as Abraham, he has not failed to keep. There's going to be times where they are faithless. But it proves once again the Lord is faithful to his promise. He cares more about his own name than anything else. And when he makes a promise, his name is on the line. And so he's going to fulfill his promise because it's his name that's on the line. So, um, I said the book is in three sections. Where is it at? There it is. The theme of the book of Joshua is 
best summarized, I think, then as the Lord's faithfulness. Did I skip one? Yep. What did I skip? I'll get there. Uh, that was it? I'm going, I'm getting there. Faithfully kept his promises. The Lord gave the land and Israel took it. Yep. Um, so you'll, you see this every time the section changes. You notice this, it's a repeating theme that pops up every time the section changes, is that the Lord gave the land and Israel took it. And so you see in Joshua eleven twenty three. so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments, and the land uh, had rest from war. So that was at the end of the first section. And then you get to the, the next one, which is twenty three fourteen. Um, is that right? Did I hit that right? No, I didn't. 21, 43 to 45, he says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it. So it's this repeating theme that pops up every time is that, that a section changes, is uh, the, the Lord gave them the land, Israel took it. So essentially it reiterates that same point that God has faithfully kept his promise and there is required obedience on the part of Israel. So this is kind of hammering home through the book of Joshua. All right, uh, move on now. Everybody got that? Okay, (laughs) good deal. Um, So the theme of the book of Joshua then is the Lord's faithfulness and Israel's required obedience. We good there? I had already kind of preempted that one, so I don't know if you got that. (laughs) We do do it in order around here. Uh, Sometimes it won't click, and then sometimes it does twice. Um, Now, what we also see is that the Lord is going to give the land of Israel, um, uh, the the land of Israel to the Israelites on the condition of faith. It's on the condition of uh, particularly the faith of Joshua. Joshua is taking over the mantle as the new Moses. And we're going to see some parallels here in just a minute. But Joshua is taking on the mantle of the new Moses and he is tasked with, some, with, uh, with taking over the land, leading the children of Israel in so long as he is faithful. And the moment he's not faithful, uh, well, the Lord's going to, not afraid to start over. Right, so, but faith is going to be a requirement. And so Joshua has to come in and take the land, and there's three requirements for his faith that we see uh, set out in the book. One is to cross the Jordan and set foot on the land. That's the first one. The second one is to be courageous and to fulfill his task. And that's, this is there in the packet for you. And then the, other, the, the last is to meditate on the law. So he has, he has to be faithful to all of these things, and his faith in the Lord is measured in these ways, that you actually follow through with what I'm commanding you to do, and go over and set foot on the land. And we're told that as he does, and as he leads the children of Israel, people will flee before them. He has to be faithful to set foot on the land and walk, all right? And, and God is going to handle the driving out of the people and driving them mad, which, as we're going to see here in a minute, he is already beginning to do. Now, what we're also going to see is that there are some strong parallels between Joshua and Moses. And mostly the entire book is laying out how many parallels there are between Joshua and Moses, that Joshua is, in fact, the new Moses. Much like Moses, Joshua sends out spies into the land. Um, and, but this time, it's different. How many spies did Moses send out? Do you remember? Yeah. Twelve. How many spies came back with a positive report? Two. How many with a negative report? Simple math. Ten. All right. That was a softball. It's just seeing if you're awake. Um, so, but this time, Joshua sends out two spies, and they go into the land of the Canaanites. And this time, though, instead of the spies coming back fearful, the Canaanites are the one that, ones that are fearful. Um, we're going to see this in just, in just a moment. Um, actually, Joshua 2, 9 to 11. Go ahead and read. I'm not sure where. Is it on the back? Two, yeah, it is. It's on the back of the first page. 
Somebody read that out loud. Joshua 2, 9 to 11. Remember who this is that's talking? It's Rahab. She's telling the spies as she's hidden the spies, we know the report of you has made it all the way back. Now, this is before the days of text messaging, okay, and email and Twitter. They're not on Facebook. They're not checking any feeds. News of what the children of Israel have done in crossing the Red Sea and making it all the way up and defeating the armies along the way has made it all the way back to Jericho and the men of Jericho are terrified. And by the time Joshua and the men get over there and look at the city, it's boarded up. They know that the children of Israel are outside. They know that they're waiting. And they've boarded up the city so that no one can come in or go out. And we know that there's walls and things like this. And they, they've, they've done that so that they can protect themselves against, um, against the Hebrew people. Because they know that uh, the Lord is coming with them according to Rahab. Um, now... The spies make a treaty with Rahab, which is really interesting because that's contrary to the commands of Moses. Look at Deuteronomy 7, 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, this is Moses talking, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and, sh and show no mercy to them. But what happens to Rahab? They gave her and her family a pass. They took her in. Now, so which is, seems to be a complete violation of, the, of what Moses is telling them. But what we find is that there is more flexibility in the commands of Moses and in the, in the laws than what may, it may appear in the scriptures that as they get to Rahab's house, I think the, condition, the, the expectation is that the people that they're going to meet are going to be vile people and all completely against them. But when they meet Rahab, Rahab seems to exercise the kind of faith that actually ends up strengthening the children of Israel and not harming them. And actually, she ends up seeming to come to repentance and recognizing that their God is better than all other gods. And so they see this not necessarily as a Canaanite who may be wishy-washy at best and a pagan at worst, but they see this as a repentant proselyte, someone who is a, a, a really a Jew at this point. We also know something else about Rahab. What's interesting about Rahab? She comes back to us in the New Testament. How does she come back to us? She's in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1.5. Um, she uh, gave birth to Boaz, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, gives birth to Boaz, who with Ruth had Obed, who had Jesse, who had David, who we know as king, uh, if you know the Andrew Peterson song. Um, so, uh, so it seems like this is the reason why they end up uh, saving or sparing uh, Rahab. Now, just as a quick look of what the route is going to be. Here they are in Shittim, right here. And we've got several little pathways here you can see, all right? Now, this is pre-generated for me, so I don't draw the colors, all right? So bear with me here for just a second. The top line up here at the top, which is very, very, very similar, the top line is the route that the children of Israel end up taking across the river of uh, the... Um, Jordan River, good grief, across the Jordan River all the way up to Gilgal, which is where they stop. The middle line is the route that we presume the spies took into Jericho. And then there's a point in Jericho chapter three, of Jericho, Joshua chapter three, where they go and hide up in the hills, which there's a hillside right behind the city of Jericho. You, we, okay, we're trying to go to the, the Holy Lands. If you're interested, please let me know because you're going to end up driving past Jericho on your way to the Dead Sea. But you come past Jericho, and what you see is you get up on a hill and you drive down. Once you get over here, it's flat. 
all the way up to the Jordan River. So there's only really one hill they can run up on and hide, and that's right here behind the city of Jericho. And so it seems like they come up here on the, the hillside and hide, and then they go back and they take the bottom route back to Shittim, um, back across the Jordan River as they're, they're spying out the land. So it's just, it's not, but, you know, probably, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe 50 miles uh, across to Shittim. So it's not that, that far. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And when we say mountains, don't think Everest. All right. Think like, um, Chaha. 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 I'm getting there. I had to think. Do what? What did you say? Like a big cliff. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a big cliff. When you stand on top, as Moses did, when you stand on top, I'm telling you, you stand on top of a hill there, you can see, you feel like 150 miles. I mean, it's, am I right? It is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You stand on top of a hill, you can see forever. So Moses goes up on, on that hillside and he can see, he can see everything. And Jericho is just a little circle, just, just a tiny, you drive right past it and it's controlled by, it's under Palestinian control. So it's not as easy to get in and, and navigate around, but you can do it. There's tours or you can take of it. But, um, but so you have the, the modern city of Jericho and then the ancient city of Jericho right behind it. Um, which are uh, right there, so in, the, in that area. Um, another thing I want you to see is some excavation that they've done here. This is archaeological stuff. So this right here is the base of a tower that was built in about um, 8,000 B.C. that we have uncovered. So this is super-duper old, all right, right here. Um, so this tower. And then in the ancient city of Jericho, they've actually dug down deep enough where they can start to see strata built up, where they can tell um, the years that these, uh, these things have occurred. And wouldn't you know, there was a time, we're having trouble lining up the years, but bear with me for just a second. There is a time at about roughly, they think, right around 1500, which would still be about 100 years before we're talking about here, where uh, Jericho had what they say is, what secular scholars say is an earthquake, where the walls fell down and everything was burned to the ground. Now, the years don't quite line up, but I suspect maybe there's a trouble with dating is it somewhere, whether their fault or ours, I don't know. But um, anyway, there, there is some significant data there. And then after the burning of the city, it doesn't appear to be lived in after that, or there's so much charred remains that it's hard to tell if anybody ever did live there again. But uh, seems to indicate that there was at least a toppling of the structures and a burning at some point in Jericho's history. So um, that's at least what we know. After things are burned, it's really hard to figure out what, they, what it looked like and reconstruct things, right? Um, so uh, that kind of gives you a little bit of a, the history there of the archaeology. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is what's leading Israel into the Jordan. Now, they go into the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant, and lo and behold, it dries up, and it stops. It kind of dams up everything, and it protects them as they step across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So here we have the Ark of the Covenant, which how do we understand the Ark of the Covenant? What is it? It's a box, first of all. What's on top of the box? Cherub, surrounding a mercy seat. All right, wings. All right, surrounding a mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? What is, what is that? Judgment seat, it's where God dwells, the presence of God is. The way the Jews always understood the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant was that God sits on his throne in heaven and the earth is his footstool and where the, the place where his feet rest is on top of the mercy seat in the temple, uh, in the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle, what have you. So what you have is a picture of priests that would be the servants of the king carrying the king across the river. And as the king gets into the river, the river stops and lets his people cross. That's the, that's the image that we've got going on here. But what you see is that, um, that uh, just like Moses sent in spies, Joshua sends in spies. Just like Moses leads his people across the Red Sea, Joshua leads his people across the Jordan River. And it parts in front of them. Um, so we start to see these parallels come up. Now, um, 
the Lord is actually using the, the stopping of the water to teach both the Israelites and the Canaanites something, which is very, very important. Um, the Lord, not Baal, is the true God over the waters. So in Canaanite mythology, um, Baal was believed to, be, to, to reign as king among the gods because he triumphed over the sea god. That he had gone into the sea and battled the god of the sea and had defeated him. And so Baal reigned over the waters. So they would pray to Baal to bring rain so that they could water the crops. But lo and behold, God walks into the water of the Jordan and it stops. And it dams up and the people walk across. Not only that, but years prior to this, he sent his people across the Red Sea where he blew it apart and they walked across on dry land. What does Rahab say to the spies when they come in? We've heard how your God parted the Red Sea. The people in Jericho are worshiping Baal. They're, they're, they, that's what they do. That's their God. So, this is a very clear message that Baal isn't the God of the waters. Um, God is. Second thing he's teaching is that he has a rightful claim to the land. How many of you have seen Monty Python? Search for the Holy Grail. Search for the Holy Grail? Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Whatever, Holy Grail. Um, there's a scene in there where there's a lady that they claim is a witch. They put, you'll remember the scene, they put a carrot on her nose and they say, she's a witch. And uh, they're talking about how they could determine that she's a witch. And the determination is how, what? What are they going to do? See if she floats. Well, throw her in water and see if she floats. And if she floats, then she is a witch. Or no, if she drowns. If she floats, she's a witch. If she drowns, she's normal. And we've killed her. Um, now, this is not without precedent, actually. Um, they used to do this in the ancient Near East. Um, they would throw people in the river or in the water. And if they floated, it's the opposite, though. If they floated, if they made it out, the gods were with them. If they didn't and they drowned, the gods were against them. Now, don't put yourself in American culture. In an American culture, we, one of the biggest priorities for us when our kids are little is to teach them to swim, right? We throw them in water, work with swim coaches, all kinds of things. We teach them to swim. Uh, because people have swimming pools and all kinds of things, we don't want them to drown. In many, many countries around the world, it is not uncommon to not know how to swim. In fact, it would be pretty rare to know how to swim because... The only place you have to swim would be large lakes where there are crocodiles or alligators or all kinds of other critters and creepy crawlies and people just don't get in the water. The other reason is because you don't have the time of luxury to, to get into the water and learn how to swim. That's just not, you know, something that you do. Uh, it's something that we do in rich countries. We learn how to swim. So you put yourself in, a, in an ancient culture where not many people know how to swim. Not anybody knows how to swim. Well, <laughs> Are you going to test whether they have the Lord's favor or not? <laughs> Throw them in water. If God, if God wants to save them, he can. If not, he'll kill them through drowning. So um, <laughs> this being the state of the culture, when the children of Israel go into the water and come out the other side, it demonstrates to everybody in the land of Canaan, they have a right to this land. The gods are for them, clearly. Now, I know that might not make a whole lot of sense to us in, the, uh, <laughs> in our day and age, but uh, believe it or not, this is the case. Um, all right, where am I? Um, now, the historical and theological background of all of this explains, at least I think some, of why there is fear in the hearts of the Canaanite kings, like we saw Rahab testify to, we see it again in Joshua 5.1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all of the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 
So God had already gone before them and driven mad the cities that they were going to conquer. They were already, uh, didn't have the desire to fight because of all of the things that, the God, that God was doing for them. So Israel crosses and there is a ritual of preparation, which again parallels exactly what Moses did. We have uh, three things that, that they did to prepare. Circumcision, Passover, and the reverence of the Lord's heavenly commander. So we see this, um, Joshua gets over to Gilgal, which by the way, Gilgal in Hebrew means the hill of the foreskins. So don't name your church. If you ever plant a church, don't name it. I know. And every time I drive by it, I'm like, I get what you're doing. I get what you're doing. There's, it's a covenant renewal and there's a, a promise. I, I love it. Just don't do it. There's plenty of other names. Emmanuel, I'm glad. Uh, God with us. Hey, good. I love it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's good. But um, so anyway, um, so there's circumcision there, which is why it's called Gilgal. Um, there's a Passover that's celebrated there, which is also what Moses does. Remember, Moses on his way to lead the children of Israel out circumcises his son. Well, actually, his wife does it. Circumcises his son. There is obviously the Passover that's celebrated with Moses. Then there is reverence for the Lord's heavenly commander. Moses meets with God face to face. It turns out, so does Joshua. And remember, Joshua comes in, in contact with um, this person. Uh, it's in Joshua five thirteen. It's on that last page of text there. Uh, Joshua, it says at 5, 13 to 15, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went, went to him and said to him, are you for us or against us? And he said, no, <laughs> but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now listen to this. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, this is just an angel, right? Well, he says, take off your sandals from your feet for the place that you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You remember this? Does this sound familiar? This happened exactly to Moses, didn't it? When he walked up to the burning bush. Um, so both Joshua and um, Moses end up taking off their sandals out of reverence for the Lord. It appears that there are some distinct parallels between Moses and Joshua. First blank Moses, next blank Joshua. Okay. Um, both leaders struck fear in the hearts of their enemies. We've already seen that. Um, both initiated circumcision before fully entering the task. Both Joshua and Moses celebrated the Passover as part of the march to the Holy Land. Both Joshua and Moses took, off, took their sandals off before I am or before God. Now, um, one thing that I think this demonstrates with relative certainty, there are differences between angels that we see appear in Scripture and a particular figure in the Old Testament, often referred to as the angel of the Lord, sometimes referred to as here as the commander of the army of the Lord, seems to be very clearly the pre-incarnate Christ. There's a reason we know this or we can say this with relative certainty. On your packet there, look at the last two verses this is Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22.8-9. This is where John encounters an angel. Listen, now listen, before you do that. If you or I were to come in contact with an angel, I, I don't know what we would do for sure, but I, my assumption is if we saw this angel in all of its glory, we might be tempted to bow down and worship it because of just the magnitude of this sight. We know that because John does it. Right here in Revelation. He, he's not only tempted to do it, he does it. But listen how the angel responds. Revelation 19.10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. 
I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Revelation 22, 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. We go back to... Joshua 5.15, and the commander of the, armies of, uh, of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off the sandals of your feet, for the place that you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So the fact that he didn't tell him to stand up and not like... Yeah. Really yeah. This is somebody entirely different. She said the fact that he didn't tell him to stand up it means that he's um, different. He is different. It's very clear he's different. The patristics, the early church fathers, saw all of these references as the pre-incarnate Christ. That tells you something there. Because I'm talking about people that were discipled by John himself saw this as the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, people that came after them saw this as the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, who is the Son of God? It appears as though the Son of God is the one who has always been the mediator between God and man. Always the one who met face to face with mankind. Always the one that mankind interfaced with. Moses interfaced with. Joshua interfaced with. Uh, Gideon interfaced with on a number of occasions. We'll see this happen time and time uh, in, in um, Judges, in the book of Judges. Um, that the pre incarnate Christ was active before Matthew 1. He's long been the mediator between God and man always interacting uh, and doing the work of the Father. Um, but one thing that we do see uh, come to the surface in, in the book of Joshua, I think, so far even, is that faith um, is, uh, th in, in the book of Joshua, faith is mandated from the people in order to maintain the gifts that God has given to them. But what we see in the New Testament that's different is that the actions of complete faithfulness were carried out by Christ. And what was given to Christ's people is a heart that can respond in faith. So what we've been given by virtue of Christ's work is a heart that is bent on obedience to the covenant. So what that means is by the work of the Holy Spirit, we now in the New Testament have been given hearts that are driven toward repentance that are producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control because of the work of the Holy Spirit. What's required in the law, we're going to see man cannot do. All of the obligations of the covenant, man cannot fulfill. And yet we see God continues to be faithful in spite of man's faithlessness. And the outcome of all of the disobedience of Israel is ultimately going to be for God to send one covenant keeper to earth to do the job that man could not do. And that is Christ. Questions, comments? So do the contrast again. In the New Testament, we, we have hearts that are uh, driven or... Yeah, propelled. driven by the Holy Spirit. Propelled is a good word. Driven by the Holy Spirit. Um, toward, to be covenant keepers, to be bent towards repentance, to be bent towards love, uh, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Um, that's the fruit of the Spirit. It's what He does in us. But out of gratitude, not out of that's right. dependence upon us. That's right. So what we see now is that the, the faith becomes the evidence of a heart that's converted, not faith in order to produce a converted heart. You don't have uh, obedience in order to produce the gifts from God. Faith is the result of the gift from God of salvation. Uh, you see that as evidence throughout the New Testament. We don't do it to earn God's favor. We have God's favor by virtue of Christ. Yeah, even in his name, he's the new and better Joshua. And what he means by that, 
Hebrew, the word for Joshua is Yehoshua. In Hebrew, the word for Jesus is Yehoshua. Um, we get the word Jesus from a uh, Greek slash Latin uh, translation. So, but his name is Yehoshua, Joshua. Good. Anything else? Questions? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there's a uh, one of the disciples of John. I believe this is right. Polycarp, I think, is the, is the one I'm thinking of, um, who was a disciple of John. I think it's phenomenal to think that when Polycarp read Revelation, he heard John's voice. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Uh, we have his writings. You can read them, and they're wonderful. And if we didn't have one text of Scripture... Uh, 99% of the New Testament would be reproduced in the patristics, in the church fathers. They quoted it so often that we have 99% of the New Testament there. Awesome. Yeah, I've got them too. You can borrow it. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that your word has endured, um, that it has uh, been made available to us, that we can read it, that we can understand it by virtue of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that it's here among us. We can dive into it and receive understanding and wisdom from it. We can apply it to our lives. We can uh, entrust ourselves to it, and it's profitable for building up, for training in righteousness, for reproof and rebuke. Um, that we may be equipped for every good work. We're so grateful for that. We have that in front of us, and we have the freedom with which to read it without repercussion. Uh, what an amazing gift you have given to us, and we, I pray we do not neglect it. Um, Lord, I pray also that we would uh, learn to think like sons and daughters and not like slaves. I pray that we would learn to think of ourselves as accepted in, under Christ's blood and uh, living in that reality, always ever grateful for the sacrifice that you gave to us in Christ, that we don't have to be afraid anymore, that we can come to you as a son, as a daughter, um, as a child of the King, and we can uh, come to you as frequently as we wish. We, we can know from that that our sin grieves you, and um, as a father would grieve over his child, but we also know that uh, we can actually please you because of Christ. That in faith, when we respond in faith, we can please you uh, as a child does their father. We are grateful for that reality that we live in, we so often take for granted. Please allow us to do so no longer. In Jesus' name, amen.